So then, if you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision. website it is pov-publishing.com there you can read poetry essays uh, comics by world-class artists um you can also listen to podcasts we've done in the past all the links are there you can also follow the link to amazon to buy my book why so much um and uh, what else who do we have today we have richard guerrero let me tell you about Richard Guerrero, Guerrero, LB. He is a very talented and versatile guest. He's a musician. He was in a band called The Crayons from Corpus Christi. He's currently in a band called Columns. He's a filmmaker. He made a documentary about the, the Corpus punk scene called Subcultured, The Rise of DIY Rock in Corpus Christi. He's also a journalist of sorts. He had his own music podcast for several years. Richard, what do you have to say for yourself? Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, having fun already. I have known Richard for, geez, what, 25 years, something like that? Since the early 90s. Since the 90s, because uh, my band, Cor uh, Gals Panic, played Corpus a handful of times back in the 90s, and I was always really impressed with the scene there. It was this tight-knit, really well-organized, really enthusiastic scene. Um, and I came to admire the people who were responsible for giving that scene its life and character. And Richard was one of those very people. Tell us, Richard, um, what is what does punk rock mean to you? What is this whole DIY thing? So it's actually um, an experience that has basically shaped my life um, in terms of, you know, where I started as a teenager to where I am today. Um, you know, I started off playing in bands, then we started a record label that went on for many years. We put out our most recent record in January. It's a compilation LP of all of these hardcore bands from 1988, uh, from Corpus. And, uh, about 10 years ago, we started uh, a family business, uh, a rehearsal, uh, studio, um, for bands. There's about four studios and then there's a little store with a bunch of DIY punk records. So even today, the ripe old age of 48, I'm still, <laughs> yeah, kind of living is, by that, that, that code. This is all in Corpus? This is all in Corpus. Okay. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Okay. So this, we, we've uh, welcomed Richard here today to talk about a specific book called Our Band Could Be Your Life. And it really sounds like uh, you've embraced that, that title. What, okay. Tell us where the title comes from. So the title comes from a Minutemen song. It's called History Lesson Part Two. Yes, I and love it, that song. It is a very uh, sweet and tender song, uh, a ode to like how they started, right. you know, uh, and fell in love with punk rock, yeah. uh, traveling from their hometown of San Pedro, California to uh, Los Angeles. And I, I, coming from Corpus Christi, can totally relate to the Minutemen experience because we would travel to San Antonio. Mm. We would travel to Austin to see the, the touring bands because those bands generally uh, had never heard of Corpus Christi. So if you wanted to see Black Flag, which I, I didn't see Black Flag in real time, but if you wanted to see Black Flag in, say, 85, you had to go to San Antonio. You know, it's so funny that you say that because my experience in Gals Panic was we would, when we, our first year of being together, really, we'd play to 10 people here in Austin. we go to Corpus and play to like over a thousand because that scene was so vibrant. And I guess, I mean, it's kind of a weird 
uh, paradox there that you're saying like you guys would leave to see you know big name bands or whatever but the, the small bands I think and I've talked to many who just really loved playing Corpus because of the scene there well it was mainly a, a, a an issue of like small uh, scene but uh, very enthusiastic fans and the fact that there were so few places mm. that actually um, hosted this kind of music so basically we had one to two shows a month um, versus Austin which had shows like almost right. two or yeah. three times a week so those were really special and really yeah, cool right? they were I, very I special yeah. and then we would also basically because of the fact that um, there were so few places to play we would band together with other genres so like you would get a thrash band on the bill you would get you know a ska band on the bill, uh, you would get a hardcore punk band on the bill, and every band would bring their fans, and so yeah. it would look like you had like <laughs> a thousand people in the room, <laughs> right? But, but yeah. it wasn't always the case because sometimes the fans would leave after oh, the right. band it played. So yeah, yeah you played a smaller crowd, but it was still a nice crowd. Yeah, yeah. Well, even the local bands, though, I felt like were were really you know energetic and really into it. And anyway, uh, let, let's get back to the book. Sure. So, um, so when when I talk about punk rock. Like, because, you know, the, the, the book, I think, mentions it and talks about, it, you know, the punk scene and everything. A lot of times people think uh, punk rock is like this, you know, the sloppy, aggressive, mohawks, spiky leather jackets, that sort of thing. But there's a different kind of punk rock really underneath it all that's about just being expressive and just embracing the kind of DIY do-it-yourself, like making something happen for yourself, regardless of how, like, technically good you are at it right is that am i getting that right well so the way i see it um you know a lot of punk performers started as amateurs they were basically they were art people who you know decided you know we don't have to be like you know um the rolling stones or you know cream or or whoever to uh play music we can we can basically teach ourselves three chords and get up there and do our thing and that's what they did uh, and so I think a lot of what is con uh, perceived as like, uh, you know, like sloppiness is really just them learning how to play on stage. Right. And yeah. so um, but there were also you had these amazing bands at the same time, like the Suburban Lawns, you know, um, even Talking Heads. You know, a lot of those bands, I think, were incredibly tight. They were just playing things on a minimalistic level, but very, very creatively. And I think what you have to look at in that case is just where they were coming from. They were coming from an art world as opposed to a, a world that relied on a lot of musical notes. Right, right. But what you, what, it's interesting you, you put it, they come from an art world and that was part of it because a lot of times I talk to my students about what, what is fine art and I, I always like to compare it, you know, like to say that the fine art world is like a lab and it's a place where you can feel free to experiment and do really stupid, really awful things without feeling like, you know, you failed somehow. Right. And I think that's kind of how the punk rock scene was in a sense, where it, was, it gave you license to not be a virtuoso. It gave you license to try new, weird, stupid things and fall on your face because that was almost embraced and loved, right? right? Yeah, I think people were looking for uh, a really creative kind of um, experience as opposed to just somebody going up there and playing, you know, Hey Joe for the millionth time you right. know, without any sort of like, you know, interesting kind of revamping re, uh, of, the, of the piece. Yeah, know? yeah. So I think uh, what I what I think about punk rock, um, you know, especially with the bands, the 13 bands in our band could be your life are um, bands that really had this work ethic that kind of rose above all. So like Black Flag, if you've ever seen the movie American Hardcore, there's a scene where um, I, I can't remember uh, the, the subject's name, but the, but he 
it's tied to the Beastie Boys somehow, and, and so he, the, he's um, being interviewed about Black Flag, and he's talking about how Black Flag booked rehearsal time on Christmas Day. <laughs> and that just speaks to the work ethic. Like, while yeah. everybody else is just kind of taking time off, right. they're in there at 8 a.m. rehearsing. Right. And, and that's why Black Flag kind of burned through so many members is because Greg Ginn had this incredible work ethic, yeah. and he demanded everybody in the band have the same work ethic or get out. Right. I was going to ask you again about the title, but I think you're t- I think you're explaining it pretty well. Like our band could be your life, that they lived this, right? Is that what that's about? Oh, right? absolutely. They they lived this. They would go on the road and they would sleep on floors of strangers' homes or apartments. Uh, they would live on five dollars a day and eat like nachos from Seven Eleven, and sometimes they would share the nachos. You know, they would talk about like you know getting a candy bar and breaking it into you know thirds or fourths or whatever. You know, just so that everybody had some. Uh, you know, so they basically put every single dollar that they made back into their respective bands. So it's it's definitely um, more than just you know um, trying to you know make music. It's also about like the work ethic that they created as a result. So the band is uh, the book is our band could be your life. The author is Michael Azarad, and the subject of the book, of course, is not punk rock in general, but a little more specific. It's American punk rock from mostly the eighties. And uh, and then into the 90s. And the bands that are covered are the Butthole Surfers, Mission of Burma, Mi- the Minutemen, Black Flag, Husker Du, Minor Threat, The Replacements, Sonic Youth, Big Black, Fugazi, Mud Honey, Beat Happening, and Dinosaur Jr. And it seems like there's a difference between American punk rock and British punk rock. And I'm going to throw my little theory about it out, th- uh, out there, which is I think that uh, American punk rock is more stripped down, less glamorous, and also less cynical than than English punk rock. There's that, and I would say that, you know, I think there's a lot of sociological factors that uh, kind of differentiate the two uh, styles. You have um, just the entire economic system that uh, English punks lived in. I think that really has a huge bearing because they were able to, you know, um, basically fund you know, their bands, you know, um, through government money, whereas in the United States, they couldn't even get food stamps. <laughs> so yeah. you have these stories in the book, you know, where people talk about like, oh, well, we were trying to get food stamps, but, you know, we got denied. I myself tried to get food stamps uh, while we were touring in 94, mm-hmm. got denied, got into trouble. So it's not, <laughs> it's, it's not easy to get food stamps uh, when you look like, you know, a punk rocker. Uh-huh. Uh, so, but, you know, over in England, you know, there's a dull system. So there's, there's some sort of basic minimum that people can get to sub- survive, uh, you know, be of, you know, of, of, of basic means in terms of, you know, um, being able to provide for oneself, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so I think that makes a huge difference when you have, you know, a, a, a basic minimum income to help you kind of get along. Whereas right. in America, you really have to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if well, you don't work, you have to have help. So each chapter sort of follows the band that it's covering, um, until that band reaches a certain level of success, whether it be, you know, getting signed to a, you know, a major deal or whatever it be. But it, it's sort of like um, it poses the question to me, does success inevitably change the creative process or the character of the band? I think, yes, I think because bands, you know, start off in complete control of their artistic, um, you know, resources and and 
all of the decision-making power resides within the band in the beginning. Um, when you start working with a label of any size and they're putting significant amounts of money into your project, they get a voice. Right. They get a right. stake. Sure. And you have an outside party adding that influence, whether it's welcome or it's undue, you have that influence and that's inevitably going to shape and sometimes maybe even ruin your artistic right. creation. Right. Yeah. So I think a lot of bands, you know, they, um, in this book, they, they struggle with that. And, and the problem I think, uh, for most of these bands is that in the eighties, you had this re real cynical mindset with the audience where like the minute who's could do sign to a major label, people stopped listening to them. Mm. They sold out. Right. But you know, you know what was, that meant was that, you know, those records were able to come to my town. Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, that that's what, sense. that's what it meant. I mean, they had better distribution. I was just listening to the warehouse songs and stories on the way over here. I actually really liked that record. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like a lot of the Husker Du fans kind of snub their nose at that one. It's like, that's, right. that's their sellout record. But sure. Yeah. I, I like it. And I mean, I think that, you know, Bob, you know, probably, you know, was very much in control of the, the songwriting part of it because of publishing, you mm. know, um, he wanted, you know, um, the lion's share of the money. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of infighting with, with bands in terms of like publishing, because that's really where the money is, especially, right. uh, you know, if you're not making anything off of, off of, you know, um, touring or whatever, you know, it's like you, you, you hope that the record does kind of live on and, 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 you know, attract a, a core following. And, and so people will continue to buy the, the various reissues or whatever. Right, it's like, sure. Uh, I mean, that, that's what we can say now back in 86, uh, you were just hoping to get the record out in the first place. Right. But now it's like, you look back and you say, well, you know, we had all these other tracks we can put out a reissue and, and, you know, make more money off of it. It's, it's, it has a longer shelf life now that we know what we can do with things and that there is a market for that kind of, that kind of, um, you know, all of the warts and all kind of releases, yeah. you know? Yeah. Oh, well, speaking of, of like the long game when it comes to this book, uh, my interpretation of it, I mean, it's been a couple of years since I read it, but, uh, I, I think, you know, if you look at the overarching theme or overarching, like kind of arc, there is that it starts with the DIY culture in America in the early eighties with black flag. And, then it sort of follows these bands, and yes, it's one per per chapter, but it builds, and it and it kind of goes in a chronological order in a sense, uh, it's sort of following this this DIY culture as it builds and changes and evolves, and it sort of culminates in the release of Nirvana's Nevermind, and it it sort of makes a comment, several comments about you know the business growing around it and that sort of thing. What's your take on, what are your thoughts on that characterization of the scene growing that way? And that it, saying that Nirvana's nevermind is like the, the pinnacle there. So I came uh, of age uh, in around, I guess like 1985 is when I first really truly started to accept punk as something that I could, you know, become interested in. Uh, before that I was an orchestra student. I was into fantasy metal like Fate's Warning because in Corpus Christi, heavy metal was the dominant genre. Mm. So um, I actually had to work backwards. I had to kind of like teach myself to not worry about the fact that they didn't play that many notes or, you mm. know, that they didn't have like 12 parts to a song. Right, sure. Uh, so, um, but I remember um, vividly reading Henry Rollins' tour diary in Spin Magazine. Uh, this was a tour, I think they went to Europe. And I was just riveted, like the stories he told, like the one that I can remember is when uh, Ian McKay of Minor Threat was, uh, 
he was their roadie and like they were in London um, and the crowd was just spitting on them and they opened for um, a punk band called Chelsea and or actually they were supposed to open but they wound up headlining and so the crowd was instructed by the singer Gene October to get Black Flag. So like, <laughs> right. you know, basically the whole time that Black Flag's playing, um, you know, they're lobbying, you know, uh, loogies and just all kinds of gross stuff at, at the bed. And then uh, some guy who's, uh, I guess, exceptionally close to Ian gets in his face. So Ian punches the guy out and the crowd takes like two steps back. And at that point you establish respect. So mm. that was like a very powerful thing. I was like, what kind of bands get spit on and why would you accept that as it even i would just walk off and uh -huh. that was my mindset you, the band the the audience is supposed to clap not spit on you, you right know? so i was like 14 years old when i read that but that opened my mind uh, up into a whole new world of like you know art, artistic you know uh sensibility and also the fact that certain people are willing to accept so much more just to be recognized for mm. what they're doing mm -hmm. You know what's interesting to me, uh, and I'd never thought of it this way. I'm a big CCR fan, and I'd never really thought of these bands, these punk bands, idolizing Creedence Clearwater Revival in the way that they did. Even some so far as to say that, like the the, the flannel uh, shirts that are became the trademark of the grunge scene were like kind of influenced or taken from the CCR days, right? Right. Well, and that that speaks to the Minutemen. They they adored. Uh, you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so they dress like them, you know, and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Green River, right? Yeah, that was Green the name River. of the band. Yeah, it yeah. Like became and of course, Pearl Jam or something, right? Some yeah, Pearl Green, Jam River, guys. Uh, Green River had, I think, Mark Arm from uh, Mud Honey. You'll have to fact check me because yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> sure. a lot of this info I haven't thought about in 20 something years. Yeah. But um, yeah, and, and so, you know, CCR and bands like that are, are, you know, kind of like the the DNA for some of these bands, yeah. which they were already working at a higher level than people who came from the art world because like the Minutemen were working class guys. Mm -hmm. So they came from a whole other place. They weren't artists. They were more about like coming from the docks and places where, you know, people did hard industrial sure. work. American oi. So basically. yeah, yeah. Well, but they were liberals. They were definitely left leaning yeah. guys. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, sure. They had songs like working men are pissed. You know, that's like a, a wonderful song about the working class. You know, uh, they had songs that just, you know, our kind of common knowledge now, you know, it's like, um, you know, Corona, you know, was used by the Jackass uh, TV show. So, mm. I mean, they, they have all of these wonderful songs um, and it's just this incredible tapestry of ideas and sensibility that is very, very, you know, unique for a band uh, functioning in the, in the early 80s when their, you know, major label count counterparts are uh, bands like, you know, uh, A Flock of Seagulls mm. and... And Minute Work, who I adore. I love Minute Work. <laughs> but, I mean, come on. Their music wasn't as challenging as, of course. as say, the Minutemen yeah. or Black Flag yeah. or, or bands like that. Yeah, I was going to say the uh, <clears throat> probably the most shocking revelation in the entire book for me was that the guy who started Black Flag was a deadhead, a huge Grateful Dead fan, and been to, he said, I think he said he went to 75 shows or something. I was just like, are you kidding me? No, it, that's very true. And they were also very big into Black Sabbath. Oh, right. So yeah. there's a story, I think it's in the Henry Rollins book, uh, Get in the Van, where uh, they talk about just being totally turned off uh, from the hardcore scene. They were just, they were done with it. So basically, um, 
ZZ Top's Eliminator record had come out, so they had a cassette. So they would pull up to their shows playing uh, Eliminator, you know, sharp-dressed man, right, and yeah. legs and all legs, of that, yeah. and they would crank it as they unloaded, <laughs> and the punks were just, like, crestfallen. They were just heartbroken because their, you know, yeah. hardcore heroes right. were, like, embracing MTV rock. That's hilarious. But, but, you know, but back to the CCR thing, I you know, after reading the book, I went back and listened, and then, you know, call me crazy, I can totally hear... In Soundgarden, like the like Chris Cornell's voice is a John Fogarty voice oh, sure. in a, yeah, in a yeah, sense, yeah. you know. But anyway, yeah, we all have like you know the 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 bits and pieces that we kind of borrow from sure. a wide range of art, and that's what makes music interesting. Is you yeah. can take you can cherry pick your influences and create a whole new sound by being very selective with your sure, sources. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so so which of the bands are your favorites in the book? Wait, so because I'm from Texas. And because I've lived three times in Austin now, um, I was very thrilled to read about the Butthole Serpent. Right, me too. Me too. Uh, and the reason why is because, like I said, I came of age um, in terms of punk in the mid-80s. And a lot of these bands were already either they were at the end of their career or they were done. Um, and so, um, well, not done, but I mean, you know, a lot of them were like kind of moving on into different sounds, I guess, or different projects. But um, so the Butthole Surfers was a band that um, was actually putting out records uh, in real time, as far as my timeline goes, um, and we would go skate to their uh, albums. Mm. I would order their cassettes because their music was not readily available in Corpus sure, Christi. Right. So I had to order from Touch and Go. And I remember one summer I, I sent off $10 for, um, I guess, um, Rembrandt Pussy Horse or one of the cassettes. And I didn't get it for six weeks. And so my mom had sent a follow-up letter saying, I am going to contact the Better <laughs> Business Bureau and all of this. And so um, somebody from the label wrote back, you know, a, no, a nice little note. Sorry, it's so late. We were on tour in Europe and we had nobody to send our wow, mail. Wow, yeah, that's yeah. great. That's great. So, um, but yeah, I remember like, you know, kind of hearing all of these crazy stories about this band that would like, uh, you know, have medical films playing in the background yep. and yep. they would blow stuff up and shoot guns off, you know. And so... That that band came with so much hyperbole that you didn't know what was real. So to actually like have a you know a chapter in a book where like they lay it out, you know, and it seems pretty much like they're they're being fairly straightforward with their history. Oh yeah. Um, where whereas like they could be like totally like goofballs and just like oh we did all this stuff, you know. But it seems like they're being pretty straightforward. I mean they they admit to crying a couple of times because they got canceled or whatever. <laughs> so I mean that's that's pretty real, I think. <laughs> So uh, I was very excited about the Butthole Surfers chapter, and I never got to see them play. Um, there were a couple of times that I could have gone, but just, you know, work or whatever. I, I just mm -hmm. never made time to see them. And I think I've seen about a thousand bands. So there aren't very many bands that I regret missing, but Butthole Surfers, Surfers yeah, 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 definitely right. one band that I wish I could have made time for. Um, Husker Du, I, I um, really was starting to uh, adore their records. I, you know, I heard like, um, you know, some of the later records, um, when I was, you know, uh, still in Corpus. So I knew of those records, but yeah. I didn't hear any of their, their hardcore stuff. Yeah. And so through the course of this book, I went out and got all of their, uh, original. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Their, their early records and, uh, like land speed record, metal circus and all yep. of that. And so, yeah, those records are, are really, really good. Um, the one band that I would have liked to have seen in here, and I was thankful for the mention is a Milwaukee band called Detroitson because, uh, I think Detroitson was an absolute game changer in terms of Corpus punk rock. Mm. Um, they played in Corpus on the uh, October File Tour in 1986, and the 50 people who went to that, 
Like the legend goes, you know, like, you know, uh, in Manchester, 50 people saw the Sex Pistols play. Oh, right. 50 yeah. people started bands. Same thing happened in Corpus. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody was inspired. You know, Tim Stegall, you know, the Austin oh, Chronicle yes, writer. Of course. Uh, he played, I think he played that show. Um, and yeah, his, his band, The Hormones, uh-huh. they, they played that show. Okay. And so, and he's still playing in The Hormones. Right. Yeah, they're still doing people, it. But yeah, he's still, still doing, doing The Hormones. So, um, yeah, it was it was a very influential show. And that band, each record was different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first record, a self-titled record, is like the, in, in my opinion, one of my top five all-time hardcore records ever. Mm. And it's just so tight. And so which one is it? Tell it's, us again. It's self-titled. It's Decroitson self-titled okay. from 1983. Okay. Uh, there's a previous 7-inch called Cows and Beer, which hints at, at the greatness of the band. But the self-titled LP is really where it's at. It's just the production is is really really good, and the the talent and and just musical ability just shines through on this record. It's brilliant, and it's overlooked. I think a lot of people don't even know about that record. But then October Filed is like a complete 180. They go slowcore, and they're doing things very kind of like in a psychedelic way. They're using digital delay. It's a very kind of spooky record in the sense that they went from like fast to slow um the third record is more of a commercial like it's like oh hey bands are starting to get signed we should maybe do some songs that are a little more commercial but they were great songs that was the thing and one of the best ballads i've ever heard in my life number three is is on that record and then they closed with cement in 1991 which is about the time that nirvana came out and stuff Mm, yeah well let me ask you this was it who was it that said that writing about Music is like dancing about architecture. Was it? I've heard that. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so I, I get. So, reason I bring it up. So here we have a book that's all about music, and if if you're not into the music, would you enjoy the book? And if you know, I, I think most people who are inter, interested in this kind of subject matter are going to want to research and like as they. I, when I was reading the book, I was just really increasing my musical library here, buying up everything that I was reading about and checking it out. Uh, I guess my question would be, number one, how do you, you know, analyze like the, the funness of a book or the, the, the genius of reading a book or, or the cultural analysis of a book, um, on its pure writing alone. Do you think this book is like, there's something to be said about the writing alone? You know, um, the journalism in this book is, pretty impressive. Um, I've written 300 music stories for the newspaper in Corpus Christi, mm-hmm. and I've interviewed everybody, everybody from Carlos Santana to, you know, Kevin Seconds, John Joseph of the Cro-Mags. Mm. So, and I did this usually in my car. So <laughs> the DIY ethic continues, right? right? Yeah. Um, so I, I read this book and I was just really, really impressed with the quality of, of the, the writing and also the attention to detail. Yeah. And the, uh, it's interesting when you talk about writing about music in the book, in the introduction, he actually says, you know, I'm not really going to be writing about the music because I'm going to, and he recommends some source material where you can go and read about the music, but he's really writing about the people. He's writing about the bands and it, it is a really powerful, when you lived through it, it's powerful to go back and get a sense of the time and place, right? I mean, this is what helped to define an era for a lot of us when we were kids and uh, and I was just in the parlor last night at Texas, Austin, Texas pizza restaurant and bar, and the walls were plastered with these bands. I mean, you mentioned Kevin Seconds. There's a Seven Seconds 
poster on the wall and someone had scrawled, ask Kevin seconds about his white power tattoo. And I just thought, you know, I don't know if he really has a white power tattoo, but it's interesting that this is decades later, decades later, and people are still like really up in arms about whether this guy is a good guy or not, you know. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, my friends and I were obsessed with this kind of music, and we were particularly obsessed with a single question, with whether someone was a poser or not, <laughs> and what it meant to be a poser, and who, how could you tell the difference between someone who was just really into the stuff and, and, and was a poser? So let me ask you that. What do you think? What makes a poser, and what separates a poser from a punk? So I guess I would say that, um, you know, I was probably a poser for a while because I like I came from the metal world and I didn't have a lot of money to buy the records and we didn't have access to good record stores. We had some decent record stores and they carried some of the the basic, you know, titles. But, you know, if you wanted something really obscure, um, you had to go to Austin or um, Hogwild in San Antonio. So I didn't know a lot of stuff in the beginning. I would read maximum rock and rolls that were three years old. So my knowledge was dated, you know. Um, there was no internet. So there was no way to verify these stories. People would say things and, you know, you would carry these kind of like myths with you forward. And then you come to a place like Austin where people were there and they'd say, what are you talking about? You know, like, how? Uh, who told you that? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, this other guy told me that. And they're like, well, I was there. That did not happen. Interesting. You know? Interesting. So, yeah, we would we would operate on all of this misinformation because we, we had no way to fact check things. It's so funny. You know, I, I think back to those days and wonder, how did I even know shows were going on? And, and I think of, you know, for example, when I went off to, to college in Nebraska and I lived in this tiny little shit town um, and we would drive to Lincoln, the college town, for uh, you know, to, to buy records. And it was there. They had at the record store. They had a bulletin board, and that's where people put their flyers up. And that's how we found out about shows. And then we'd come back and buy the tickets to the shows. And then we'd come back and go to the shows. And it, it felt to me like that was like the you know like the the, the meeting place of ideas and, and information was these record stores, these little indie record stores. Absolutely, it was such a strange time. Like when I think compared to what kids are doing that, like right. how much information you can have but back then it was like you make your pilgrimage to the the you know close closest town that actually had a record store you could buy these things right there's a story in the book uh in the husker d chapter where they talk about uh putting out uh the double lps in arcade and um they sold 3,500 copies of that double lp within like a month but they were touring, and so they would get to a town, and there were no copies to be sold. So they would do in-stores, play, and would not have any merch mm, to sell. Right, yeah. So they were extremely frustrated with the lack of um, support. Mm -hmm. And that's why they signed to a major label, or one of the reasons why they signed, right. is because they, they couldn't get their records in the hands of the fans that really yeah. wanted those records. Yeah. Well, I think the, the thing that I've, you know, here I am, like you said, I mean, I'm pushing 50 <laughs> and, and I'm still so in, inspired by this kind of thing, this kind of like DIY culture. I mean, LB and I started our own publishing company, right. you know, like for that very reason, because it's cool. like uh, I wanted the experience of, of writing and putting it out there and having people read it. And, I, you know, rather than wait around for somebody else to do it, we did it. And so there's still some of that ingrained in me it sounds like there's a lot of it still ingrained in you um there's a lot to be i mean it, it, and i mean even though we have the internet 
I think sometimes because we have the internet, we have to actually embrace this even more. Tell me about, okay, that's a good question, I think. What, how do you think the internet has changed this, and how do you think the lessons in this book can be applied today? So the internet basically made the, um, the whole process of, uh, you know, kind of information consumption, it, it basically shrank it down, you know, uh, considerably. So like, you know, a kid could decide he's going to get into punk rock and within the space of a week, basically go from, you know, go the from sex posers. <laughs> yeah, sex pistols to, you know, um, you know, spaz in the 90s and, uh-huh. and, and move forward, you know, into the more modern age, you know, perfect pussy and bands like that you know it's like um you can do all of that very quickly now whereas you know we were living it in real time you know kind of trying to get get up to speed with the history with the ancient artifacts but at the same time there were still bands that were putting out pretty decent records uh in the late 80s so you had you know records to kind of keep keep everything going there's a really great band from sweden that i thought um you know should have been a lot bigger they were called union carbide productions mm. and those records i i have since tracked them down and they are among some of my favorite records you know the fact that they they put out this one record called in the air tonight which is a reference to the union carbide disaster in india bothell india um you know just speaks volumes about you know what they were trying to do you know they were really trying to kind of not not only write amazing music but also kind of you know reference modern things and and really kind of keep you uh, intellectually uh connected to the wider world yeah i, I- I think a lot of people are talking about, you know, these days as being, uh, you know, glory days for creators because, you know, you're, you create something, you, you know, you record a record and you can put it up on Bandcamp and you can have it out to your fans. And none of this, like the stories you tell where you go on tour and you don't have the record, like you just point people to the download, right? Right. But I think that also makes for a lot of white noise and it makes it just as difficult to get the attention that you want for your band um, as far as like even booking a band, you know, it, everyone works through email nowadays and it's super easy to ignore an email. It's super oh, sure. easy for it to go to spam. It becomes almost more difficult to book a show these days. Uh, whereas back in the day when LB and I were in, in our stupid bands in the 90s, uh, you know, Debbie down at Hole in the Wall had an office hour. And if you called, you got the gig, right? Awesome. <laughs> You're responsible enough to remember when her office hours were and yeah. call her, you know. Um, so it just it feels like it's it, it's not necessarily the 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 um, opportunities are not necessarily greater. They're just very different. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, um, the fact that, you know, music is so available makes it kind of in a way disposable, I think, to modern oh, right. listeners. That's a good word. Because for it. they don't really view the artistic process the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, they just like my kids. Um, they're they're modern kids. So they'll listen to something like Black Flag or, you know, um, you know, the Minutemen and say, why does it sound so thin? Mm. You know, they, they have no idea of the struggle that it took for those bands and, and the working conditions that were that they were working under. Like some of those LPs were recorded in like a day or two days. Right. You yeah. Know? So there was no second take. It was just you flew through the, the take and that was what you kept. Yeah. So my kids have no uh, ability to process <laughs> that. Right. Because they, they live in a digital world. Everything can be fixed. Absolutely. Well, look, there's so much more I would love to talk to you about with this book, um, but we we got to move on. We've sure. got we've got our lightning round that's 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 pushing into our time here. So, okay. uh, are you ready? Yes, absolutely. Okay, lightning round. Here it comes. Uh, first question: When was the first time you fell in love with a book? 
So the first book I ever read that I really cared about outside of the high school books that we were told to read was uh, Charles Bukowski, Ham on Rye. Uh-huh. That book really made reading palatable to me. It, it really kind of spoke to me on so many levels. So I, I think that's probably one of the most important books for me personally. Is that a, a collection of essays? Or is no, that, it's a, it's, it's it's a, a full, full on auto, uh, it's a full on autobiography. Oh, okay, it's really gotcha, like gotcha. his novel okay. about his life. I you see. Know? Yeah, yeah. And it's, 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 you know, he had a very difficult life yeah, for yeah. sure growing up in the depression and everything. Good answer. All right. So uh, has a book ever changed your mind? Uh, it, it has definitely broadened my mind for sure. Um, so I, I don't know that I um, can say that I've ever changed my mind because of a book. I've definitely had some, you know, kind of uh, interesting, um, I guess, you know, thoughts about what the subject matter was trying to say to me mm. and whether I agreed with it or disagreed with it. But I can't really think of a time where a book actually changed my mind. Um, there were a few times in this book where I kind of felt like, there were some missed opportunities to talk about maybe some of the lesser bands in the scene that were, um, you know, still very, very vital and important. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, has a book ever changed your life? Um, yeah, I would say that, um, you know, ham on rye was, was definitely one of the, because I mean, prior to that, I didn't, I didn't drink alcohol. Uh, and so I was starting to (laughs) drink bad bad influence. No, 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 no. But what I mean is like, you know, the fact that this guy was like kind of writing about life from a very, um, impoverished kind of way and, and still just having these really lucid observations and everything, you know, as a kid, I was, taught that alcohol was like a very demonic thing. And of course, coming through the punk scene with Minor Threat and the, mm, the straight edge right. scene, yeah. uh, half of my band, the Crayons, when we were in high school, we were, uh, you know, straight edge and the other guys were not. Oh, is that right? So <laughs> we actually, the, the reason we were, we were going to play with Youth of Today in the Valley in 88. Uh-huh. And uh, the reason that I chose to play with Fang instead was because I was afraid that the, the drunk guys or the guys who drink in the band yeah. uh, would, you know, get us into trouble with you know, Ray, That's today, and great. he looked like a scary guy to me. So I didn't That's want any hilarious. trouble with those yeah, guys, yeah. you know. Well, it's like uh, what Hemingway said, write drunk, edit sober. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think there are a lot of people who kind of live that creed. Well, has a book ever made you cry? Yes, yes. Um, so, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of an example of that. Uh, there's a there's a couple of uh, Bukowski stories, short stories, where he really is, is saying poignant things. Um, you know, I think the most beautiful woman in town, there's a, a really nice short story in there. Um, there's various scenes in other books by other writers that, that I really connect with. So I have a book that I've written um, that is unpublished. And so the ending, when I wrote that ending, I really like was like, oh my gosh, I was like really moved by the ending. So um, yeah, like I think it's just if you're really in touch with what you're doing, mm. creatively speaking, you know, I think you can be even moved by your own work. I like that. I like that. Was it, so was it a, a was it a novel or was it a short yeah, story? Yeah, it's a novel. Like, okay. um, and it's, fictional? Yeah, it's fictional loosely. It's There's some bi- biographical elements sure. in it. Of course, yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Okay, fantastic. Um, you ever going to release it? I am thinking about it. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really busy with work and, and yeah. you know, I'm, you know, trying to be, uh, you know, uh, a great co-parent. So, yeah, <laughs> spent a lot of time on the road <laughs> right. coming back and forth between uh, Corpus and Austin. Gotcha. Uh, okay, so name a book that you've read more than once. Uh, so I have read this book. Um, you know, after I read the book from page, you know, cover to cover the first time, 
um, I would go back and read various chapters mm-hmm. um, just because I favored uh, yeah, yeah, some bands more than others. Like I was really, really big on Big Black in high school mm. um, because of Thrasher magazine. Thrasher was, um, you know, very, very in- influential in addition to Maximum Rock and Roll. And so Big Black was a huge band. The skaters loved Steve Albini right. and his work. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, I, I definitely read uh, that book or this book a couple times, at least, uh, you know, various chapters of it. Uh, Henry Rollins's book, Get in the Van, I think I read that a couple times. Um, and then he also had like some of his own books, you know, he had a collection of poems yeah, and, yeah. and things. So some of those books came out uh, in the 90s and I read a couple of those a couple of times. Fantastic. All right. So here's the million dollar question. Do you have any poetry committed to memory? Uh, no, I don't. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, yeah. that's fine. That's fine. You're you're definitely in, in the majority here. I think I think we've only had maybe one or two guests who've actually, um, you know, had the guts to actually try to recite something <laughs> or the memory, right? Um, well, okay. I mean, but you know, if you if you'll permit me, you know, like the title of this book, I think, is a perfect piece of poetry. It's fantastic. I I love that song. Um, and uh, and I don't know that I knew the song before I read the book. To my, to be honest. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's. So I have this playlist. It's called The Celebration of Life. And I'm not trying to be morbid, but, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I want my life or my, my funeral to be reflective of my life. So I just I've curated this set list and it's on there. And it's, you know, it, it in a way it speaks to my life because, you know, we were the same way. We were outcasts. And when we'd go to bigger towns, we definitely stood out. We just we'd you know, we would go to San Antonio. We'd go to Austin and everybody knew they're not from here, you know, never seen these guys before. <laughs> uh-huh. So we definitely, I, I feel like that song speaks to my experience, you know, in a very deep and profound way. I, I'm fine. I, I think that I'm very, very lucky to have experienced what it was like to tour with, with my band. And I think that that might be one of the reasons why I love this book so much is that feel like being reminded that nostalgia feeling of, of being on the road and just feeling lost and you're just doing this thing, you're living your, for your, you know, for your uh, music and for your band. And there's something just really magical about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the last time we went on tour was uh, in 2006 with Laughing Stock and it's a lot different now to tour. Yeah. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. Right. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's still uh, when you can, you get up there and play and people are coming up to you afterwards and say, I really like that one song, you know, yeah. um, that is like, that, that's what it's all about. It's like connecting, even if it's just with one person, of course. you know, to have yeah. that person come up to you and say something nice about your music when they don't have to say anything. That's why we do it, right? Yeah. That's yeah. why we do it. Yeah. So y- your band Columns is recording a new record right now? Yes. As, as a matter of fact, we have, you know, our own studio. And so, like, we basically, whenever time permits, work-wise, we come in and we work on tracks. So we we actually have a, a secondary studio here in town. And so we kind of mm-hmm. work back and, you know, between both studios, back and forth. So when can our listeners hear it? So schedules are really the key thing. Uh-huh. Um, John Alanis, our guitar player, is also in another band, a local Austin hardcore band. And so that band is starting to really take off. Um, and I... I Wish I could tell you the name, but they're, they just played two, I think their second show, mm-hmm. maybe their third show. Um, and so they're starting to really kind of, uh, you know, take off. And so they're going to get more active. So that's going to kind of slow our project down a little bit, mm. but, um, he still makes a lot of time for the recording sessions and stuff. However, we do have a show to announce. We're playing a uh, dozen street on September the 20th. And what's the name of the place? Uh, Dozen Street. Dozen Street. Yeah. And where is that? East Austin. Okay. I've only been there once. So okay. I- Dozen Street, September 20th. Columns. That's where you can see them. Check it out. 
Uh, we have something to announce um, from POV Publishing. Uh, LB has a book, and his release is on September 21st at Malvern Books. Is that right? Yes, 7 p.m., Malvern Books. September the 21st is a Saturday, so you can come and, and you can be straight edge. Hell yeah. So, uh, what's the, <laughs> speaking of straight edge, what is the name of the book? The book is called The Goddamn Fool. That Goddamn Fool, and you'd be a goddamn fool to miss September 21st and September 12th. Uh, go see Columns. Uh, Richard, thanks so much for coming and talking to us about this stuff. It was a blast. I mean, this kind of stuff is really what I'm still doing. So, yeah, it's always a joy to talk about things that I'm still doing. Awesome. Okay, well, thanks. And thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.